Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the living God. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the flesh, men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we ask that you might direct our hearts to the truths of your word. Help incline us to receive its teaching. And we pray that you might encourage, convict, exhort, counsel, and guide us as your sheep this day. Awaken any here who are lost and without Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There is a call to arms in this passage of Scripture. You'll notice verse 1 tells believers to arm themselves. <coughs> They are to, as it were, take up weapons. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. But notice what the weapon is. Notice what it is that we are to arm ourselves with. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. The weapon, the armament here, is the mind which Christ had toward your sin. Beloved, I want to present to you four things from this text this morning. First, the call or the call to arms that verse 1 clearly speaks to. Secondly, the reason why that call is given. Thirdly, what we are to consider as we arm our minds with the mind of Christ toward our sin. And then lastly, the hope that we have. What it is that we are looking towards as we arm our minds. The call, the reason, the consideration, and the hope. Let's look then, firstly, and chiefly, at this call that the Scripture gives to us. We are in a section of First Peter where suffering is the topic. Actually, this is our third week in a row, the third paragraph in a row, where some kind of suffering is given. How to prepare for suffering was what we looked at two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at how Christ suffered for sin and what his suffering for sin accomplished. And ultimately, the fact that in his suffering for sin, victory was proclaimed everywhere. But then thirdly, this morning, we look at how we are to think in the face of suffering. A particular kind of suffering, by the way. 
Look at verse 4. Therefore, let's just stop and linger on that word for a moment. You know where I'm going to go, students of Scripture. When we see that word, therefore, it helps us to understand that there is a connection. There is a flow that the writer is making. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, flows right out of 1 Peter 3, verse 22, and what came before it. There is a connection to the previous passage. Notice then what Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Now this suffering obviously ought to bring to mind Christ's atoning work on the cross. Maybe that's a new word for you, a new message for you, or maybe you've heard it and you're not exactly clear of what it means. But yes, Peter does have in mind the understanding that Christ came, the eternal Son of God, that he assumed a full and complete human nature, and that he suffered and died the death that sinners who trust in him down through the ages deserve. Christ paid the penalty for sinners. And any sin that you can think of in your mind, if you're aware of what the Bible calls sin, any sin that you can think of in your mind is a sin that is not too deep for the atoning work of Christ. He suffered in the flesh according to his humanity for sin. But Peter doesn't just have Christ's atonement in view. He also has in view the goal of our sins being destroyed. You see, some texts of Scripture speak to one or the other elements. Christ suffered to pay the price for sins. Or Christ suffered that our sin might be done away with. That produced in us by his spirit all the way from justification to sanctification To glorification is the ridding of sin. I think Peter has both in view, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. When you see this, Christ suffered in the flesh for us. Arm yourselves. You need to understand that Peter has in view not only the atoning work of Christ, but also the goal of Christ's suffering. Did you know, Christian, that Christ died not simply to pay for your sins, but that you, as a sinner, would one day ultimately no longer be a sinner? That your pattern of sin, the entire nature of it, would one day be done away with? Paul speaks to this, doesn't he, in passages of Scripture like Romans chapter 6, where he boldly declares the gospel for multiple chapters, and then he simply says to every believer, sin will no longer reign over you. Sin will no longer reign over you. Peter has something similar in mind. The Puritan Matthew Poole commenting on chapter 4, verse 1, says this, quote, With the same mind which Christ had, who in his death aimed not only at the pardon of your sin, but the destruction of it, And the renovation of your natures. You are to think as you walk here on earth as a pilgrim. Christ died to pay the price for my sins. And he died that I would no longer be ruled by sin. And this is the mindset that we are to have. We are to arm our minds with the goal of the end of our sin. Do you know that every single believer that dies... The moment that they are 
with Christ. The moment that they die and their soul goes to be with the Lord and their body is placed in the ground awaiting that day of the resurrection. That is a moment where they see Christ face to face, but they also cease from sin. It's a glorious reality. It's a glorious reality. But the scriptures call us to be living toward that day even now. To be ceasing from sins. And we're to arm ourselves with this. The call to arms in the midst of this discussion of suffering is, hey, Jesus died for a goal. You should have that goal also. That should be your goal. Now notice what he says next. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Those of you language scholars, this word ceased is in the perfect tense. It could be translated, he who has suffered in the flesh continues to have ceased from sin. It's an ongoing reality. But who is the he that has suffered here? Well, there really are two options. Let me give both of them to you. And whichever option you choose lands you in the same place, have the same goal as Christ when he died, when he suffered. What was his goal? That should be your goal. Option number one is that the he is a reference to Christ. That Christ has suffered in the flesh. And that his suffering is finished. And that he has made it such that you no longer are ruled, owned, connected to by sin. It's a parenthetical note, if you will, of his putting an end to sin. For Christ, who has suffered in the flesh, has made it so that all who are in union with him have no more dealings with sin. That's one option. Or the second option, very similar, is that the he is you and me, the believer. That we, in Christ, who died to sin, Romans chapter 6, In union with Christ, we have ceased from sin. You might be thinking to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, I'm a Christian, but I haven't stopped sinning yet. Has everyone else in this room stopped from sinning? And of course, the resounding answer is no. There is no sinless believer here among us. When we say, along with Peter and Paul, that the believer, that Christ has made it, that we have ceased from sin... We're using that language of Romans chapter 6. Turn there with me for just a moment. Now, Peter is not Paul, and Paul is not Peter, but they're writing under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit. They are not opposed to one another. Sometimes people in the world love to try to poke at the Bible, and they'll say, well, these Bible writers, they, they tend to disagree, forgetting all the while that we confess that it is the Holy Spirit of God who inspired Holy Scripture. And we shouldn't interpret one passage as if the rest of the passages don't exist. But in Romans chapter 6, what does Paul say? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The Scripture says that a believer has died to sin. Or do you not know that as many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. But then the text gets even more interesting. If that's possible, verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The person that you were is an unbeliever with all your sins, with all your mess, with all my sins, with all my mess. It was crucified with Christ. Then notice what Paul says was the goal of the crucifixion. Romans 6, 6. That the body of sin might be done away with. Verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And then if you keep reading, verse 14 says, Sin shall not reign over you or have dominion over you. Peter and Paul are speaking the same language. So Christ died with the goal that our sins would be paid for. And that we, in union with Him, would no longer have anything to do with sin. So when we look at the latter half of 1 Peter 4, either the person who suffered in the flesh, who ceased from sin, is Christ. He's made it. Taking on the sins of all the believers. But there's a ceasing from that. There's there's nothing else that Christ has to do. To eternally free His people from sin. And in union with Him, we have died to sin. Or, that he is you and me with the same reality. Hey, in Christ, in union with Christ, Romans chapter 6, we ceased from sin. We died to it. And in this context, this is demonstrated by our suffering ridicule for avoiding sin and or for identifying with Christ. That's what Peter is going to talk about, isn't he? Hey, You're going to suffer. We'll talk about this in a moment. But the suffering in view is that you're suffering because people are ridiculing you because you avoid sin. In other words, the one who suffers for Christ and for righteousness sake has an interest in ceasing from sin. Because that was why the beloved Savior died. To put an end to our sin. So how are we to arm our mind? Well... Let me say it this way. We are to arm our mind by comparing our sins with the sufferings of Christ for our sins and his goal that they may be destroyed. Every sin is a type of idolatry, yes, a type of unbelief, yes, a type of the old nature mixing with the the new nature that we have in the spirit. But every type of sin is a forgetfulness. (laughs) In that moment, I choose... In my sin to forget that my Lord died to conquer this. Every sin is a momentary forgetfulness of the goal that Christ had in mind. A goal that, praise be to his name, will not be undone by my sinning until he comes. So what's the call? Have in mind, Christian, what Christ had in mind. The destruction of your sin. Atoning. Work, shedding his blood that you may no longer be condemned by it, and the destruction of it. Can you imagine? We sing of this in some of our hymns, don't we? Can you imagine 10,000 times 10,000 years from now? If Christ has come and all believers are with him in the new heaven and the new earth, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, without an iota of sin, Christ will get his goal. Let us have that in our minds. 
Because Peter talks about suffering, but I want you to notice that the suffering in view in this passage is that people mock us, they ridicule us, sometimes they put us to death because we don't do the sins that they do. We've seen the call, the call to arms. Let's look secondly at the reason. Notice there in verse 2, we're given a purpose clause that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. And verse 2 is why many commentators think that the better interpretation of verse 1 is us. Because Christ never walked in the lusts of men. Others, depending on how you translate it, think that there's, there are two things going on here. I'm looking at you going, whoever the he of verse 1 is, arrives us at the same result. Have the mind of Christ. You're united to him. What was his goal? The destruction of your sin. Have it. But notice the reason for verse 2. It clearly has to do with us. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Why should we arm our minds with Christ's view of our sin? Christ's goal in his suffering for sins? The reason is that we should live for the will of God, for God's law, versus the lusts of men. Those desires that drive us sometimes to twisted things, to ungodly things. The reason that we should have this mind, the reason for the call to arms, is so that we pursue holiness. Now, how do we live for the will of God? Well, God gives us his holy law, his moral law, summarized in Ten Commandments. And then as believers in our day who belong to the new covenant, there are positive laws, laws that belong to the new covenant, baptism, the Lord's Supper, certain descriptions of how we treat one another, how we honor widows, what kind of leaders and servants we have. There are positive laws. If you want to know the will of God throughout all ages, do what the psalmist did. Make the law of God your delight. We've talked about this before. Just take, take a commandment. Third commandment. To not take the name of the Lord God in vain. You dwell on that. You think, why not? You begin to meditate upon what God's name is throughout the Bible. All of the attributes of God that are signified by his name. He is the glorious one. He is beautiful. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. You begin to think about the fact that any usage of God's name in a way that makes his name vain diminishes the reality of who God is. It doesn't change who he is. Our sin doesn't mean that God is not glorious or less glorious than he used to be. You begin to think, the things that I listen to, the things that I say, the conversations that I'm involving myself in, or perhaps the flippant ways that I use God's name. You begin to meditate on just that one commandment and you think to yourself, I have some changing to do. But I'm not changing myself so that I can be saved. No, Christ has saved me. So I I meditate on his law. I take his law, which is his will for my life, into view. I begin to live my life increasingly desiring that those ten words 
are fleshed out in my life so that increasingly I don't follow the lusts of men, but I follow the will of God. You know, we live in a time where everybody wants to know the will of God for their life, but nobody wants to talk about the law of God. The call to arms and the reason for it. Another way to say this is that Jesus didn't simply die to pay the penalty for your sins. He died so that your life will forever be radically different. The call to arms and then secondly, the reason that we should live the rest of our time in the flesh, not for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. But then there's thirdly a consideration, isn't there? Look at verse three. The, the, the writer, Peter, asks us to consider something. We, we, we've been told, arm your mind with the same mind of Christ. There's a reason. There's an outcome that is desired. Now he calls us in the next few verses to consider some things. Verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That's another way of saying we've followed the lusts of unbelievers. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they, that is, the unbelieving, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. What's the consideration? Well, firstly, in verse 3, there's a benefit in considering the error of your past life. Now, at first glance, you may be thinking to yourself, hey, you got to have your fun. That's what Peter's saying. We've spent enough of our time. You got to have your fun. Now you need to live for God. And how many people out there think that? They say to themselves, I'll get right with God one day when I've had enough fun. You know, Peter's not thinking, hey, God is in a give and take. He's given you a couple of decades where you got to do what you want to do. And now he's asking you for a couple decades if he gives you heartbeats to do what he wants you to do. Peter's not doing that. I think what Peter is saying is, hey, look how long you wasted your life. Outside of Christ. Look how long you wasted your time with other people in, and then he gives you lewdness. Your, your translations, all of them I'm sure in English are, are good ones, and they're going to translate these in a variety of ways. But lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. A consideration is, hasn't God been gracious to you that he stopped you from continuing to waste your life? In hell-bent desires. Of course, our brother read this morning from Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9, the verse right before that. Ephesians 2, 3, described that every unbeliever walked in the ways of the world in one way or another. Even the unbeliever who grew up in church... There are boys and girls and teenagers here who, by God's grace, have grown up in church... But if they're outside of Christ, they have the ways of the world. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. Their hearts are bent against God, just like every other unbeliever. 
This is similar to when the Lord God says to the Old Covenant people in Ezekiel 44, 6, Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. This is the New Testament version of it. Hey, you've spent enough of your past life in doing the wasteful things. Consider this. Consider this. Or you could, in context, say, look how long I lived my life against the very goal that my loving Savior died for. The destruction of my sin. Look how long I've spent my life in living for the very opposite of why Christ died. And now, by His grace and His grace alone, His Spirit has caused me to see that Christ's sacrifice for me on the cross is my only hope. And by faith, I've received Christ, and there is a change in my heart. And my old nature and my new nature... Existing together in the same man and the same woman are at war. Willemus Abrockel in one of his works describes the believer in this way. It's like that time of day, dusk or early dawn, where you don't know whether the sun is coming or going. The sun and the darkness are melting together and you know, is that part of the sky, the part that is the sun or the darkness? It's what a believer's life is like. The old nature and the new nature are at war with one another. And there's a picture. Our deeds are still tainted by sin, but there is a war within us now. We're called to have the mind of Christ. There's a reason given. And we ought to consider, we've spent enough of our lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. But notice he furthers this, doesn't he? And this is where we get to the discussion of suffering. In regard to these, they think it's strange. Why are you strange to the world, Peter says? Because you're religious? Not in Peter's day. Everybody was religious. Why do they think you're strange? Because you sing when you get together with other people who are religious? No. Because you have certain rites that you do? Not in Peter's day. There were mystery cults everywhere. Everybody had something or a group of somethings that they were worshiping. Why do they think that it is strange that you are strange? Because you do not run with them. That's a good translation. It's not just that you don't do things. You don't just join in with all of their racings for sin. You do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. So they speak evil of you. You are spoken evil of because you do not do what the world does. Now that phrase there, they think it's strange. It could be translated, they are shocked. Or if you you really want to get into words, it could be translated this way. They, the world, think that they are entertaining strangers. They think that they are being hospitable to very weird people. Of course, isn't this how Peter opens his letter? Just the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims, strangers, sojourners, temporary residents, exiles. That's how Peter opens the letter. You are a stranger here. 
Now he's given us further detail on how it is that we're so strange to the world. First Peter three, verse 16, a few verses back, you remember that Peter tells us to suffer. And he says in verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. So a question as you consider. Are you okay with this? You know, the early church, when they would interview baptismal candidates after a period of a lot of training, would in some way or another ask that baptismal candidate, are you ready to leave sin and Satan? Are you sure? We may hear that, we may think, I don't want to put any walls to to baptism. The early church was very serious. Hey, look around you. There's a lot of lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Are you sure that you want to be plunged in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because in doing so, you are being named after a God who owns you, who is saying to you, you've had enough of the wasted life. Leave it, because Christ is Lord. Are you sure? A part of the reason why Peter may list these kinds of sins is that in his day, and we have these in our day, but in his day, certain parties, feasts, practices, and idolatrous acts were a part of the culture. In fact, in Peter's day, you could be religious, very religious, as a Gentile, and it not really impact your morality. Religion was to be at home. Does this sound familiar? But not in the public square. And so you could be involved in one of these mystery cults where you would do certain idolatrous practices, sometimes that were sexual in nature. But then if you were to travel to another part of the Roman Empire, you would honor their gods as well. And if they had a feast, you'd celebrate in the feast. I mean, who doesn't want a free meal? (laughs) And their religion didn't keep them from involving themselves in these kinds of things. And do you know what they called Christians in the first century? They called Christians haters of mankind. Why are you kind of call us haters of mankind? We want to worship the, the true and living God. What does that have to do with hating mankind? We think you hate mankind because when you don't honor our gods, you do disservice to us, to our culture. When the next tornado comes, when the next bad crop comes, it's on you. You are the one that didn't appease our gods. You're a stranger. You're weird. Christians were haters of God because they wouldn't involve themselves in these feasts. But Peter also has in mind just following the lusts of the flesh. Some of you may say, my resume is in 1 Peter 4, 3. That's who I was before Christ. I walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness. Maybe that's what you're saying. That's who I was. Notice the last phrase of verse 4. Speaking evil of you. Notice that the focus of the context of suffering in our entire passage 
is our decision to avoid sin. Brothers and sisters, how often do we make persecution out to be about political ideas, cultural ideologies? We worry that the culture is persecuting us because we have a particular view about a particular issue. And those things are not necessarily wrong, and certainly in other parts of Scripture they're being addressed. We are being persecuted for what we proclaim. But here, what does Peter have in mind? You're being persecuted for what you're not doing. We, we do need to perhaps recover some of that in the generations ahead. If Christ tarries, we need to remember that we will be persecuted not simply for proclaiming the gospel, but for increasingly not sinning in ways that the world sins. Let me press it one step further. We are right to condemn sin and to receive persecutory words for it. But let us make sure in our zeal to proclaim the word, our lives look like the word. Let us be very careful that we understand that the kind of persecution that Peter has in mind here, being spoken evil of, is, hey, you don't get drunk anymore. You don't do the kinds of sexual things that you used to do anymore. You don't involve yourselves in events where people are going to be doing wicked things anymore. That's the persecution Peter has in mind in our text. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, here's the call. Christ had a particular mind in his suffering. Atoning death for your sins and that your sins would be destroyed. You ought to arm yourself with that mind. Your goal until you see Christ is to remember what his goal was, the destruction of your sin. The reason is so that you spend the rest of your time living for the will of God, the gracious God who saved you. And to help you with this, consider how much of your past life was wasted. Living against the very will of God. Working against the very goal for which Christ died. And consider that if you're going to live for Christ, they're going to speak evil of you in part because of what you no longer do. Well, is there hope in this? Because they're speaking evil about us, Peter. They're speaking evil about us. Can you imagine what it'll be like for your child or your grandchild to be in certain social settings ten years from now if the Lord tarries? To be faithful for Christ? The schools? The sports teams? They're going to be riddled with bullets from the world, verbal assaults. You are weird because of what you don't do. Is there hope? Peter says, yes. Look at verse 5 and 6. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What's the hope? 
The final word will always be Christ's. That's the final word. And notice that he is described in this way. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter will pick up on this in his next epistle. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I won't read all of that to you. But just picking up in 2 Peter 3. Knowing this, scoffers will come in the last day. Walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they will willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of water and in the water. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition and destruction of ungodly men. It's a regular theme. Peter is saying, you're going to suffer, but the final word is Christ's, and he will do right by all. They will embrace his merciful atoning death on the cross and be saved from the wrath that they deserved. Or they will reject it, and they will receive the wrath that they deserve. And as you suffer for living for Him, remember, He has the final word. The hope is that your word is not the final word. You ever been in a persecutory conversation? You ever been belittled or reviled by the world and you, you walk away and you wish, oh, I wish I had said something better. I wish, I wish my, my reasoning had been clearer. Sometimes maybe you sinfully say, oh, I wish I had said this. Because we still tend to revile when we're reviled, don't we? You need not worry that your final word is the last word. The hope that we have is that Christ, who will do all things well, will deal with all those who speak evil. Now, Lotus, as we close, the last verse, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Let me tell you the final reality of this verse, and then let me just give you a couple of options as you meditate on it this week. The ultimate focus of verse 6 is this. Don't live for men, but live for God. Verse 6 preaches to us, because of the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel, don't live for men, but live for God. Now, what does it mean for the gospel to be preached also to those who are dead? Who are these dead ones? And then it says that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. I'm going to give you three options that have been used down through the ages of the church. And whichever option you choose, the outcome is the same. Don't live for men, but live for God. Because of the gospel, don't live for men, live for God. But here are the three options, or at least three of the options. Who are the dead ones that had the gospel preached to them? Option number one. If this passage flows out of the passage that came before it, the passage we looked at last week, then this would be speaking of the gospel being preached to those who are physically dead. But the gospel was preached to the righteous dead at Christ's descent to declare victory to them, which was what they had lived for. 
They lived their whole lives as prophets. Think of Noah. Constantly preaching the message of God and being reviled for it. They lived constantly with the promise of God in view. And so the preaching to the dead here would be that proclamation that Christ made in his descent. Hearing and seeing all that we've waited for comfortably in the place of the dead has come. He's come. Here's a second option. In verse 5, God is pictured as the judge. In verse 6, notice who does the judging. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh. So in this interpretation, what this verse would then mean is that the world will judge believers as they may. They're going to judge you according to the flesh. They're going to call you all manner of bad names. They may judge you as they will, but death is not the final word because gospel believers live to God forever in the spirit. But even though men's judgment may have gotten to the point of killing their body, they live because of the gospel. What option one and option two both have in common? Hey, don't live for men. Live for God. But a third and final option. When the text says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to the men, according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Option three is that their carnal fleshly ways may be judged, but in their spirit, they may live by Christ. What's the ultimate focus of that interpretation? Don't live for men, but for God. This section, our text today, is part three of three sections on suffering in 1 Peter. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. And chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And what was the beginning of this entire section? Let me take you back there. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Where Peter quotes from Psalm 34. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This week, you're going to be tempted. In that moment, arm yourself with the goal of Christ towards your sin, the destruction of it. Consider that the reason that you're told to do that is that you may follow the will of God. Consider all of the time when outside of Christ's mercy, before you were saved, you wasted your life. How in his grace he saved you and that he has promised you that even in the midst of suffering for not Sinning in old ways. His word will be the final word. Let's pray. Living God, help us. Help us, we pray. In this day, in the time that we have left in the flesh, to have the mind of Christ. To have the destruction of our sin in view. To live 
for our Christ who bled and died and not for the lusts of the lost of this world. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.